Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Outside the oil boom town of Anchorage, two young women, one a possible sex worker and the other a 24-year-old dancer named Sherry Morrow, have been found murdered in the space of two years. For Detective Maxine Farrell, these bodies are part of a much bigger picture. Of the number of girls I was collecting as missing persons, I think it was about 10, 12 girls. I've got a feeling that maybe there's a serial killer out there. It was everything for me to stop this. All I needed to do was get this guy. I was like stuck on, we gotta get this guy. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, The Butcher Baker. In this seven-part series, we're taking you back to the summer of 1983 in Alaska. Episode 2, There Were Stuffed Animals Everywhere. One of the most recent additions to Maxine's list of missing girls is a young woman named Delyn Fry. Her mom calls the Anchorage Police Department in July of 1983, she hasn't heard from her daughter since June. I have a picture of Dylan here around the time she went missing. She is shortish with blonde hair in a wavy 70s style, and she has these enormous eyes. I want to give you a sense of Dylan's backstory because, as you will hear, this becomes important. My name is Deborah Fry Benner. I am a first cousin of Dylan Fry. Uh, I was raised with her father. We lived in a neighborhood in Baltimore that had lots of row homes. It was a city in the city. It was called Greektown. And what was the rest of the family like when you were growing up? So my grandmother raised 10 kids by herself. That's including me. They all grew up and they pretty much got out early because my grandmother was very strict. What was your relationship like with Delyn? 
Well, she was six years younger than me. But when she was there, my uncle would bring her to stay. So I took care of her. I played dolls with her. You know, I read her stories. We took walks. Dylan, her mom and dad separated, divorced at a very young age. She was different. She had these green, darker green eyes, but they were like almond shaped and very it was sad, just sad, you know? I mean, she did all the things that a little girl would do, but then she would, there would be times that he would bring her over and leave her and she would be very quiet. I mean, you couldn't get a word in edgewise with her. Deborah tells me that Dylan split her time between her dad's house with his new wife and new kids and her mom's house in New Mexico. Do you think she was being mistreated at home? I think it was other things, and I hate to say it, but I know it happened with one of our relatives because he was that way, and at that time, everything was hush-hush. You didn't tell anybody about what happened, even though you found out a few things and said, "Uh uh-oh. You know, we have this man that's here and he's doing things to people in our family that he shouldn't be doing things to. You know, it's very hard. You think she might have been abused? I think she was, and also by, and I hate to say it, by her own father. You know, I hate to say it. I just want to step back here for a moment to be clear that Deborah is speculating that Delyn was sexually abused as a child by not one, but two men within her large family, including her father. I read somewhere that she was eager to leave home. Yeah, yes, yes, because who could blame her? I mean, I did too. She just wanted to get away from her situation? I think she did. I think she did. The last time you remember seeing Dylan, could you tell me about that? She came over. My grandmother was babysitting for me. And we just went out. We went and saw old friends. How old was Dylan during that last meeting? She was 13. You know, she was restless, just like any teenager that has family issues. This was the mid-70s. Deborah never saw Dylan again. I asked our research team to try to work out what happened next. They found some court documents that put Delyn in Anchorage in their early 80s, working at the Shangri-La Health Club. We tried to find out exactly what this place was, but we kept hitting dead ends until we went back to police officer John Daly. He said this was, quote unquote, a massage house on 27th Street. It apparently had a pretty impressive sunken grotto. The court documents also mentioned that the police department at this time knew Delyn as a heroin addict. So why do I want you to know about all of this? Because victims of crimes and their histories are often overlooked. And actually knowing about a victim's background is crucial to understanding what type of person may have committed a crime against them. This is where criminal profiler Dr. Brent Turvey comes in again. Over the years, he's developed something called behavioral evidence analysis. Behavioral evidence analysis has three parts. And the first part is examining the physical evidence to reconstruct the crime. The next thing is you look at the, what we call forensic victimology. And these are the traits that indicate the intersectionality or the vulnerability 
of the groups or the individuals being targeted for crimes. And we conceptualize those mostly as things related to modus operandi, how the offender got there, how the victim was selected, uh, how what they did with the victim during the crime, whether or not they let them live, if they killed them, how did they kill them, if they restrained them, how they do that. And that is used to suggest motive. And then finally, the fourth step, you, if you haven't done those first three steps, you don't have a fourth step. But if you do the first three steps, you can then start doing the profile, which is uh, what's the skill level of the offender in this context with this type of crime. Like you can have an offender who's very good at burglary, who's very poor and leaves a lot of evidence behind when, when, it, when they commit sexual assault. And when I, when I describe this to new students, they always say, oh my God, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. That's the point. If you haven't done that work, then you don't actually know what you're doing. You don't actually know what you're profiling. So it's not a guess. It's a concrete analysis of established behavior, established victimology, and established crimes and characteristics. Now, I want to be clear here. There's no kind of evidence-based forensic investigation going on in 1983. Far from it. Sherry Morrow's murder case is languishing at the Alaska State Troopers, and the missing dancers are being ignored by everyone except Maxine. But I want to go down part of this road with Brent now to see what Maxine's list of missing dancers and sex workers can tell us about a possible perpetrator. You've got these girls brought in by Talents West. They have similar backgrounds. They have complex trauma. Um, they're also marginalized, right? So in the context of complex trauma, let's talk about it. There's, there's two kinds. There's trauma, which is from a single event, usually uh, something very traumatic like witnessing a murder or being sexually assaulted or being the victim of domestic violence. Those are events, and that results in what we call PTSD, right? A specific event that you're reliving because you have not learned how to integrate it into your world or into your sensory experience. Now, complex trauma is things that happen over time that you're not allowed to talk about that you're not allowed to give voice to, that you're not allowed to uh, reference, that you have to be quiet about. And that that is unresolved trauma. Society will not let you acknowledge it or deal with it, and you or you don't have the resources to deal with it. And when you look down that list and you look into their backgrounds, almost everyone, just like Dylan, who may have been sexually abused, or like Sherry Morrow, who also had a difficult past, they all have something that indicates complex trauma. Exactly. The ones that have that history of, let's say, trauma or violence, that have those addiction problems, that have that financial illiteracy, those are the ones that are going to wind up getting hurt the most. Those are the ones that are going to be the most vulnerable. And sex traffickers are experts at identifying those girls and separating them from the herd. Yeah, they, they know what they're doing. They know how to select their talent. Yeah, it's a business model. Works very well. And you definitely see that in my area of study as well. Serial killers can become experts at identifying the right victims. They become almost victimologists. Anyone who's committing successfully or unchecked committing serial crime, whether it's burglary, sexual assault, or serial murder, they learn who they can target and exploit and who, the, who will not be protected by the, the, the system, by law enforcement or by the government. So the pattern here, the M.O. of this guy, is to pick up the most vulnerable of the vulnerable girls. And that fits right in with what Susan Bradford said in our last episode, right? Right. Just to remind everyone, Susan was the friend of Sherry Morrow. She walked her to a date from which she never returned, and she spoke to Sherry's date at the club a few days before. This is her talking to the Mind of a Monster team in 2020. 
But he'd ask me, do you have family up here? Where'd you come from? And his big drill, do you have sisters and brothers? Where are you from? What you're doing? This guy is checking her support system. He's checking how vulnerable she really is. As we mentioned in the last episode, Maxine's list of suspects in the trail of missing girls starts small, just three men. A transient worker who fled to Hawaii, a local photographer asking girls for their picture around town, and a middle-aged guy named Robert Hansen. Hansen owns a bakery downtown. He has a wife and two kids. He's last on Maxine's list for a reason, but all that is about to change. Think in the car. And I'm laying down on the back seat with the cover over me. And get to the airport. And then the passenger seat, he had a rope and a gun. You're hearing the voice of 17-year-old sex worker Cindy Paulson in a police interview. Sometimes she's hard to hear, and I'll jump in to tell you what she's saying. It's around 5 a.m. on June 13, 1983, at Merrill Airfield, just outside of Anchorage. It's summer, so it's been light since around 3.30. Cindy is handcuffed and hidden under a heavy green wool blanket. She watches as a man takes stuff from the car to a small single-engine bush plane, a Super Cub, parked right next to all the other planes. Um, he kept going back from the truck to the plane. And then when he went back to the plane, I looked up and I see him. I could only see him from the waist down. And the front driver's door was open, so I opened the back door. Cindy describes seeing Hansen with his head right inside the plane, turned away from her. She knows it's her only chance to get away. And I ran, and he started chasing me with the gun. Cindy races across the parking lot next to the airfield, barefoot ducking behind cars to hide from the armed man behind her. She makes a final sprint toward the highway. And then this guy in a white truck stopped me because I had the handcuffs on my hands and I didn't have no shoes on. I was hysterical. The truck driver asks the handcuffed, crying Cindy if she wants to go to the police. She says no. She wants him to drop her at a motel. And um, he gave me a ride up the street to the machine, and that's when I called a friend of mine to come and get me. Cindy calls her pimp using the motel phone, and the truck driver continues on to work. But by now, he's sufficiently shaken up to call the police himself. We got the, uh, the call from dispatch that a white female was running down Fifth Avenue with some pants on and a jacket, and handcuffed. This is the patrol cop who got sent to check on the report, Greg Baker. He was interviewed for the Mind of a Monster documentary in 2020. We approached the room with some caution, but after knocking on the door, we realized that Cindy was in the room by herself. She was still handcuffed. I took the handcuffs off of her, tried to calm her down. She was uh, physically shaking when I contacted her. She was extremely distraught and trying to tell me what happened, you know, in one sentence. So it took a while to get her calmed down enough so that uh, I could realize what the uh, situation was. Slowly, Cindy reveals that she'd been taken hostage and raped by a guy who paid her for oral sex. 
she was pretty sure she was going to get killed because she was also aware that women had been disappearing in Anchorage. Only she was probably, uh, she probably had more insight into the problem than I, I had at the time. I asked her if she would go to uh, Humana Hospital with me and consent to a, a sexual assault exam. And she said she would. On the way over there, we passed by Merrill Field. He pointed at a small single-engine bush plane and screamed, there it is, there it is. Cindy is certain that the plane she sees is the one her attacker was loading up with supplies. So I contacted the uh, ground control, asked him to give me the name of the owner of that tail number. And the name of the owner was Robert Hansen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. 
I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It's the 13th of June, 1983. Officer Greg Baker has a lead on the rape and kidnapping of sex worker Cindy Paulson. A plane she identifies as belonging to her attacker is owned by Robert C. Hansen, living on Old Harbor Road. Ask a couple more patrol officers to go over to the address and to stand by. As the officers wait for Hansen to return home, Cindy Paulson gives the police a full statement about what happened to her the night before. But before we dive into that, I want to get some background on Cindy from author Leland Hale. Tell us about Cindy Paulson. So Cindy Paulson had grew up in a very fractured family um, and started working as as a sex worker at age 13 or 14. Oh my gosh. And, And she'd worked in Portland... And then they came up to Alaska. And actually, by the time she got to Alaska, she was fairly new working in Alaska. She was new to the area. She was young. She had a traumatic past. I hope you see where I'm going with this. She fits right in with the profile of the other girls who have been reported missing in the last couple of years. In Anchorage at this time, she's working with a pimp and staying with him in a motel room near the airfield. Most nights, she heads to the main Anchorage Strip, named, as we mentioned before, the world's longest bar. And it's here on 4th Avenue that she plies her trade. So one, one night, she's working the street, and a guy stops and talks to her. She asks for money for cigarettes, and he says, I don't have change. And then he goes to his wallet, and one of the things she sees is there's lots of bills in there. And they look like 20s, and they look like 100s. And so this is kind of a, like his come on mm-hmm. so they make uh, a, an, an appointment not for tonight for the next day she oversleeps so she doesn't make the connection with him but the next night lo and behold here's this guy again what you're about to hear is audio of cindy recounting her ordeal a few months later to an alaska state trooper it closely matches her police statement that she gave at the time. I was on the corner of Ships and Denali, and the gentleman here went by and pulled in the parking lot and offered me, you know, I got in the car voluntarily, was talking with this man, and he offered me $200 for a little job in the car. And I said, fine, no problem. Just a note about this. I'm going to play Cindy's story for you pretty straight because I want you to get a sense of exactly how detailed her account is. But every now and again, she's hard to hear, so I'll fill in the gaps. And in this next bit, it's really hard to hear, so I'm going to summarize. 
Cindy and this guy pull over in his car, and she starts to give him oral sex. But while she's doing this, he starts to play around with the necklaces on her neck and somehow handcuffs one of her hands. And I was trying to get loose, and he pulled out a gun. And um, he got my other handcuffed just from fighting him, because I didn't really... I fought, but not a lot, because I knew I would do something. She's saying, I fought, but not a lot, because I knew he would do something. What did the gun look like? It was a big revolver gun, like a police gun. Handle was brown and long barrel. Describe this man to me. He's on the same kind of darkish brownish hair. Really short. He's got like frog warts in his face, buck teeth. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he's got green or blue eyes, worst glass. And he's about five, six, weighs about 100. 70 pounds, right? And then um, he took me to his house on Old Barber Road in my boom. Take a ride at the jams and go all the way down to a blue house on the right hand side, just past the dead end sign. Uh, do you know your way around town well, or why did you happen to remember yeah. so well where it was at? Huh? But see, when he's driving, I observed everything. Because this motherfucker wasn't getting away with it. I knew I was in trouble, and I really, really, if there was any chance of me getting away, he was getting away with me. You come into the garage. Now, tell me what happens now. He takes me out of the car and takes me to the house, and um, took me downstairs, and um, he can't, I was handcuffed the whole time, and there was fish. There was wolf skins. There were um, stuffed animals everywhere. Big old, um, like caribou and um, goat's heads. Big ones stuffed everywhere. Ducks and birds. The foosball table, the pool table, and then there's another window on the street side. Yeah, I sat down on the chair next to the cocktail and they tie the rope around my neck and the coffee table. We pulled a bearskin right around. And all the time he kept telling me, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you if you cooperate. Minute, he had sex with me on the bare skin rug. This is the same time you're tied with your neck to the coffee yes, table? Yes, So if I move too far, it would choke me. Once he was done, Cindy says her attacker wrapped a chain around her neck four times, handcuffed her, and left her. And I wasn't for five hours. What did he do? Slept on the couch. Did you leave anything in the house? Um, just a towel that I had peed on. What did he do when he woke up? He came over to me and sat down and just stared at me. I saw a car and said, Mom, I want to do is go home to my mom. Your mom? Yeah. What did he say to that? He just said, well, don't worry about it. You know, everything's going to be okay. I'm not going to hurt you. And then he, that's when he told me about the other girl. And what did he say about the other girl? But there was about seven, he had seven other girls there before. Cindy's saying that this guy mentioned other girls he'd done this to. Seven of them. And he told me that since he liked me so good, 
He would take me to his cabin. He would make love to me one time and bring me back. And I, you know, I told him, okay, fine, that's good. But I acted like I wanted to go. Well, what if he would have acted different? Like, what would he have done? Oh, it would have killed me there in the house. Nobody would have known. It was so thick when it's downstairs. Quiet. All them animals. But what time was it that uh, you left the house? Probably about, it was early in the morning. And he said that he had a plane over at Merle Airfield that we would go there. And then he would take me to his cabin and bring me back. And um, I knew that was not going to come back. I wasn't going to come back. Cindy was convinced she would die out in the wilderness. Oh my God, Leland, that is heartbreaking. It's so hard to listen to. She sounds so young. She's a kid. She's not even 18. And then soon she starts talking and you get this other sense of this woman is talking about every little microscopic detail. She knows the street. She can actually talk you through going downstairs into the basement, what the basement looked like, you know, all the the stuffed animal heads, the foosball table, the pool table, the couch, the TV. For Greg Baker, hearing this story for the first time, just hours after the attack took place, it has a profound effect on him. I mean, she was genuinely uh, afraid that she was going to die and that nobody would know how, where, or ever find her body again. So I believed her and followed up as if I would follow up any uh, sexual assault complaint. The officers waiting outside Hansen's house radio Greg to say that they've made contact with Robert Hansen. At this point in the police report, Greg notes, quote, Officer Baker was advised by units who have now located the scene that matched not only the description by Cindy Paulson, but was the address indicated by the registration printout of the plane. Hansen agrees to come down to the station voluntarily. He looked like an ordinary guy. Uh, he said he owned a bakery at uh, Ninth Ingra. He said that uh, he hadn't been involved with uh, any prostitutes that morning. He was just, you know, confused as to why we were contacting him. And I told him, you know, I'm pretty straight up, you know, what the situation was. He said, well, she's lying because that certainly wasn't uh, what he was doing last night. And uh, then I took him over to investigations. Okay, so here is what we need to understand about police hierarchy. Greg is a beat cop. So when he encounters a crime like this, he takes down information, starts following leads, even takes Hanson's statement. But this is a rape and kidnapping case. He must hand it over to a more senior officer, someone in investigations. And that is what he does. And it's this senior officer who starts interviewing Hanson. And I went back to a patrol and I started doing my paper on uh, the call because I thought that uh, 
Robert would probably be, you know, arrested. I finished up my paper, went back over to the investigator to ask him what happened, how he had progressed with the interview. He said that um, he, of course, uh, believed Mr. Hansen and that the story was probably more likely to be that Cindy and Mr. Hansen had, in fact, engaged in some activity for money and that uh, he had either refused to pay her the agreed price or she had jumped the price on him and he refused to pay it. But uh, in retaliation, she had made up this story and had called or had arranged for the police to become involved. Hansen claims he did pay Cindy Paulson for sexual services, but not on the night of the 12th or 13th of June. On that night, the night of Cindy's attack, he has an alibi. I have the police report of the Cindy Paulson rape right in front of me. It's 27 pages long, typed out on aging cross-checked paper with a typewriter. The notes from Hansen's interview state, I did not pick up any women or prostitutes downtown last night. I was over at a friend of mine's house. Then he says around 11.30, he went to another friend's house and stayed until 5 a.m. before driving to Merrill Field to put a seat in his airplane. The investigator did call, made a phone call to uh, this friend of Mr. Hansen's where he had supposedly been all night. And uh, over the phone, he uh, verified that the alibi was uh, true. It was about a a two-minute phone call. In fact, two short calls are made to both of Hansen's friends, and they both corroborate his whereabouts. At least one of the friends is telling the truth. His wife and kids also had dinner with Hansen that night. So now the cops have this dilemma. Do we believe Cindy? Or do we believe his friend? And in fact, they, one of the cops kind of confronts the friend and say, now's the time to tell me the truth. Nope, I'm telling you the truth, not lying. And so that sort of sets up this situation where you have a tendency to believe the important people and they, oh, they just happen to be males. It's a sex worker's word against not one, not two, but three men. And Hansen's friends, one is a manager of a big insurance company, and the other is a professional boat builder. They are considered upstanding members of the community. While I was over there, the investigator asked Mr. Hansen if he would give us a consent to search his residence. When he consented, that was great. You know, that's less paper, less time involved. And I asked if I could go with the investigator and search the inside of the house. And he said, sure. Agreeing to a voluntary search of his home is like Hanson's calling card of innocence. Hanson rode in the front passenger side, and I got in the back of the investigator's vehicle, and we were driving over to Old Harbor. And uh, he was talking about his hunting. He was real calm. He uh, was almost too calm for being uh, accused of sexually assaulting somebody. Inside the house, Greg and the investigator head straight down to the basement, the scene of Cindy's rape and imprisonment. 
Everything was like Cindy Paulson said it should be. And there was a pool table, a foosball table. There was a bear rug on the floor. There was a ram there, and there was another head or two up on a wall. It was all just like she described, to a T. And so I was searching, and I found a hollow, a hollow wall that was uh, secured, not secured, but hidden by a piece of uh, paneling. And inside that uh, hollow cavity were um, quite a few guns. Uh, rifles, a few pistols. I remembered seeing a Mini-14, which is a, a Ruger semi-automatic 223. The 223, it's a common hunting rifle. The weapon that Cindy described in her statement, the handgun with the long barrel, it isn't among the hidden cachet. So Greg's superior asks Hansen if he owns a handgun. He says no. So the investigator didn't push him when he, when he denied having a handgun. Uh, nothing was seized. I was a young rookie with APD at the time, so he was going to make that decision. And I was not going to suggest or get in his way. He was the experienced investigator. As Greg and his boss finish up their search, Greg notices two things. Some green army blankets that match the description of the blanket Cindy said she was covered with in her attacker's car, and a ladder propped up against an attic hatch. I actually asked the investigator if we wanted to climb up and look. I mean, an attic's a very common place to hide things, you know. And he said, no, he says, Mr. Hansen's been cooperative enough. There's no sense to push him. We just thanked Mr. Hansen for his cooperation and uh, left him there with his car. There are no charges filed. Pending any further investigation, Hansen is a free man. We've gone over in detail Greg's recollection of the case and his opinion of how it was handled. But we also have the police reports written at the time, and I think these are important to look at, because they don't just tell us the detail, they also reveal the attitudes of the officers writing up the case. So, Leland, I mean, the report here says that the basement where Cindy was held, quote, this room was searched with no signs of any chains, ropes, or either the towel the victim urinated on or the washcloth she stated she wiped herself off on after the assault. I mean, how many of us expect to find a completely untouched crime scene when hours have passed since the crime? I mean, they're looking for a urine-stained towel. Okay, do you guys think, I mean, maybe you don't do laundry. I don't know. Did you think to look in the washing machine? Yeah, because if I have evidence in my house after I commit a crime, I'm not going to just leave it lying there. There's just all these little pieces that they were, that the lead investigator was willing to overlook. And, you know, and again, there's this whole thing of an alibi, and of course... What's the best way to contact an alibi witness? You go see him. No, no, just ring him up on the phone. That's, that's fine. We don't have the time for that nonsense. Exactly. And another thing that stands out to me written here says, during this entire search, it should be noted that the suspect was extremely cooperative, gave the officers absolutely no problems regarding information or access to his residence, his vehicle, or his airplane. 
I'm sitting here wondering what relevance does that have to this case or the allegations against him? Like none, right? Zero. None. But I think it does tell us how the officers viewed this whole thing. It's a shoddy job. And, you know, they've already kind of got their pre-written conclusions. You know, it's a hooker and this guy is really nice. Criminal profiler Brent Turvey agrees. It's that he's one of them. This is the point to understand here. So it's like they look at him and they see this middle-aged white guy, big house, owns a business. We get him. He's just like us. Yeah. When you see prostitutes or sex workers of other kinds being uh, abducted or murdered and law enforcement not doing their investigation properly and the people doing it escaping any sort of accountability, that's not an accident. And these women who aren't being believed, have we come any further from that? Do women still face an uphill battle to be believed about a sexual assault and a rape? Yes, they still do. Women still face an extremely uphill battle in, the, in this regard, in terms of being believed and being credible. Cops, they withhold good justice and good effort from people that they just don't believe, that they just don't like. And they hold that out as some sort of credential, like, uh, I, I didn't believe her, so I didn't do this. Oh, really? You didn't believe her? If you didn't believe her, great, do the investigation and show what's true. Yeah, but all of that notwithstanding, I actually think Greg does everything he's supposed to do because he takes Cindy to the rape center, he tracks down the plane, he sends officers to pick up Hanson. You can see from even how he writes up the case, he treats it really seriously, but it's his superior. He's made up his mind already. He just phones it in. People working on the street, working the cases directly hands-on, once they develop a relationship with a particular complainant or victim, uh, they tend to be more empathetic once they get past that barrier of listening, once they can hear them and see their suffering and connect with them on a human level and allow that to penetrate their subconscious, now they're gonna help them like a sister, daughter, or mother. Uh, Superiors don't have that problem. I want you to remember here that while this whole Cindy Paulson case is going down, Maxine is investigating missing dancers and sex workers, but she's doing it on her own time with no resources. In fact, To show you how little the departments were talking to each other, we checked with Maxine after our interview and asked whether she knew about Cindy's case at the time it was happening. She said no. She only heard about Cindy's abduction and rape after everything was said and done. That case should have been given to me, and I should have been the one doing the search because I knew all the things to look for. You know? These guys didn't even look for those things. And you get a guy with an alibi, you just don't take it right away like that. You kind of pressure him a little bit, you know? I sit down a little bit and talk further with the guy. If it's not true, and we're going to investigate what you said, you go to jail for the same charge. So just for a minute, let's step into an alternate world. One where Maxine brings up the missing girls to her superiors, and they set up a proper investigation with resources and manpower. And then Cindy comes into the police station with this story. What would have happened? Some dots might have been connected. Further searches may have been done. Some alibis drilled down on. Maybe. It's more likely anyway. But that isn't what happened. In fact, as Greg Baker tells us, quite the opposite. I had not heard anything about the Pulse investigation for probably three weeks, maybe four. I figured, you know, investigations take a while sometimes, but 
I pulled a copy of the report. Well, I think I just pulled it up on a computer at that time. And uh, notices the disposition on the case it was suspended. In other words, there was no more investigation going on about that case at all. On the police report, the exact words read, this case is, and then it goes to all caps, closed, exceptional clearance, no further action. It was closed on the 24th of June, 11 days after the rape. Brent's got a word for this. This is tone checking. That's what it is. It's tone checking. You're tone checking the female community there of sex workers saying, hey, I don't think you guys matter enough. So you're kind of on your own. Understand that you're less than the rest of us. And don't pretend that you aren't because you're not going to get help. When you're, when you're not helping a particular community and letting them suffer and die, that's a tone check. For Greg Baker, just like Maxine Farrell, it wasn't good enough. And I just, that bothered me, you know, because, I mean, damn it, I knew that Robert Hansen was lying to me because I saw where the assault happened and it matched Cindy's description to a T. So I decided I couldn't let that go. Greg makes a similar decision to the one Maxine made a couple of years earlier. He may be a patrol cop, but he's going to carry on investigating the case his superiors have shut down. I knew that if uh, I went over and talked to the investigator, would uh, tell me to go back to uh, patrol business and leave investigations to investigators. And that's just the way it had to be. On our next episode, we dive deep into the past of Greg's main suspect, Robert Hansen. I hated the word school. Uh, I guess this is why I burnt down the bus barn way back in Iowa. Uh, Mind of a Monster, Butcher Baker, is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Jess Leindevere. Editor, Millie Tapner. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our production manager is Alexandra Kelly. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. Our archive producer is Katia Lom. Our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Aero Media series producer is Gabrielle Nash. And executive producer is Stuart Pender. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow this series wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you could take a minute to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.